seated. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. You'll find this in your pew Bible. On page 1657 and continuing on to 1658. 1657. 1657. Continuing on to 1658. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Reading the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. Friends, this is the word of God. Listen. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. But you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Of a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. My friends, today we look then at Revelation 3, 1 through 6, the second of two sermons on this passage. Letter to the church in Sardis, in which Christ exhorts the church to wake up. Wake up before it dies. Christ exhorts the church to wake up before it dies. Now, as we've already considered Sardis, we noted last week in terms of the city, that it was a great military city. And uh, initially, these were barbarians, we would say, rough and tumble people rather than civilized people. It was a military city. It was a natural fortress. It's on a high promontory, as we talked about, with a bluff. And so a natural fortress by which the city could readily be defended. In terms of the city's religion, as we said last week, there was the adoration of the life of nature, the adoration of the life of nature. So it was in a, in a basic kind of way, it was materialistic, if you will. The emphasis was on healing power, particularly the hot springs in the area. But the city was in decline. It was a very proud city, which thought quite highly of itself. 
but now it was on the decline. It's just like nations and empires that can think very highly of themselves. I dare say we're seeing this in terms of America at this point. Very proud, very self-confident, very highly, very thinking very highly of themselves, and yet on the decline. Now, not much is known about the church, but it does appear that Paul was instrumental in founding it. John himself, the Apostle John, uh, who has written this letter of Revelation, this book of Revelation, John himself may have served as one of its ministers. It doesn't seem to have been subject to any particular hardship or persecution. It was just sort of there. Last week we considered verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, as we've talked about before, the messenger, the angel, or perhaps set of messengers, the presbyters as a whole. But in any case, it is in written form for important purposes. Notice Christ is characterized in two ways. First of all, by means of having the seven spirits of God. And uh, one of the young ladies who is here, a week and a half ago or so, was asking me, what about the seven spirits? Destiny was asking me about that, and I had to, uh, I had to tell her that it was not in terms, this is not like there are seven persons in the Godhead, that's not the point, but seven is the number of perfection. And it points to the fact that, that Christ is God. He possesses the fullness of the Godhead in all of its attributes, all of its characteristics, and all of its energies, because these seven spirits, you see, are, are not just sitting there, so to speak. They're alive. There's a dynamic there. There's an energy there. Furthermore, we see from this that the spiritual life of the church comes from him. The spiritual life of the church comes from him. So if we are alive, this is one of the themes here, wake up before, before you die, if there is life within us, if there is life within the church, it's because Christ, the Christ who has the seven spirits, is the one who brings that life. He first of all searches out our depravity so we can know what our own sin is. So at least in measure, at least in part, we can understand how wicked we are. He searches out our depravity. He has the seven spirits. He applies grace. He applies grace without which we would remain dead. He convicts and he purifies and he destroys. He is the omniscient and omnipotent Lord. He is the all-seeing God and the all-powerful God, the almighty, watching, guarding, rebuking, as we have in this passage. And so we see then that he is the one who has all the spiritual, he's the one who creates the spiritual life. It all comes from him. But not only does he have the seven spirits, but he also has the seven stars. In chapter 1, we see this term refers to the angels of the seven churches. And therefore, Jesus Christ himself, now this is a great figure here, children. I want you to think about this. I want you to think, if I had seven stars in my hand, right? And we're not just talking about 
I mean, the picture here, the, the picture that is being painted for is not simply little pictures that we have, like, like what you'd paint, you know, or you'd cut out little star figures. The, the picture here is seven stars, burning stars, if you will. And so he's the one that has those seven stars in his hand. He has them. He possesses them. He directs them, even as he is writing here to the angel of the church in Sardis, so that this stunning message, this bold message, this message that needs to be heard by a, by a church that is asleep and is about to die, so that this message through his messengers can be heard by the people consider the problem and the exhortation. He says here, I know. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. That you have a name. That you are alive. But you are dead. So they have a name. They have a reputation. But they've got their act together. But in point of fact, it is quite the opposite. Not only that, but as we saw later, they had soiled their garments. But children, if you went out in your Sunday best, or in, in your, best, um, your best clothes to go to school, and you were playing in a mud puddle, your, your mom would not be very happy with you, I'm quite sure. Right? Would not be very happy with you. That's the picture that we have here. They had soiled they had dirtied their garments. And so as we looked at last week, we have the exhortation to wake up. Now notice in verse 2, in the King James or New King James, says be watchful. That verb, to be watchful, can also mean to wake up. It at the very least carries the connotation of that. Even if directly it means to be alert, to be watchful, you certainly can't be that if you're asleep. And therefore, wake up. One cannot forget the military nature of the city. These Christians in Sardis had become drowsy. They had become lackadaisical in their walk. And they needed, therefore, to be roused from their slumber before disaster comes upon them. As we said, as we saw last week from Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In other words, live like you're supposed to live. Live like Christians. Live like children of light, as dear children, as those who are children of light. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Therefore, awake, you who are sleeping, and Christ will give you light. That's the message here. Not only wake up, but strengthen the things which remain, were, which were about to die. Again, another military figure. Furthermore, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And last week we, we talked a bit about that. Remember, you believers in Sardis, remember? 
Do you remember? When the message of salvation came to you, do you remember? Do you remember what a wonderful message that was? How your heart was overjoyed? How you understood that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you could be made alive in Christ? Do you remember how the Spirit took that message to your hearts? Do you remember? Do you remember how your heart burned within you as you thought of Christ? As you thought of the one who had died for your sins? As you thought of the the Savior hanging on the cross for you? Do you remember? Remember the tears? Tears of sorrow, tears of joy. Do you remember? Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And therefore, and guard. Again, a military figure. Keep on your watch. Guard it. Guard it. Like you're guarding the gold in Fort Knox. Guard it. And repent. Repentance, of course, is always the answer. So we saw the problem and the exhortation last week. Now we come secondly as a major point to the warning. If therefore, if therefore, verse 3, the end of verse 3, you will not wake up or watch. If therefore you will not wake up, the Lord graciously gives a warning to them. My friends, how many times, how many times has the Lord come to you and to me in giving us opportunity to repent? How many times has he done that? And this is what he's saying. If therefore you will not wake up. It's a warning. It's a warning again and again and again. Wake up. But if therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. You Jesus told a parable about the thief, right? You didn't know. I mean, how many people think about this? This is why we have a burglar alarm here, right? Or in other places. This is why you have a burglar alarm. Because you don't know when the thief's going to show up. This is why you're prepared, right? In terms of that. Because you don't know when someone will try to break through and steal. And so here he's saying, this is, but you see, what, what, notice what he's saying here. The, what the Lord himself is saying is that he himself will come like a thief. Not that he's going to be unrighteous like a real thief, but he's going to come as if like a thief. In other words, he's going to come by stealth, in the middle of the night. He's going to come without warning, and you better be ready. This, of course, in Scripture can refer, this figure can refer to the coming of Christ. Let me just look at a few passages here with you. Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Verses 43 and 44. 43 and 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour 
you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember we did a series not too long ago on 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And later in the book of Revelation, chapter 16 and verse 15, Behold, this, this, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. You know, it is remarkable. Not once, but twice, the enemy came by stealth, as we noticed last week, came secretly in the middle of the night, conquering the city, this great natural fortress of Sardis. And that same figure then is used here to refer to the coming of Jesus. The meaning is obvious. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And my friends, it will be swift and without any advance warning. Well, having heard the warning, Notice the promises. The promises, starting in verse 4. Now, to whom, these promises, to whom are these promises made? Well, they are made to the faithful remnant. Jesus says, but you have a few names in Sardis. Just a few, apparently. How often this is the case, that it's just a few. In other words, uh, let's, let's be clear here. Let's be very clear. Are you all listening? Let's be very clear here. Just because their names were on the membership role of the church doesn't mean they were converted. That's what Jesus is saying. Just because you've been baptized, just because you made a profession of faith, whatever it is, just because you're an officer in the church doesn't mean that you've been converted clear distinction between those who are converted and those who are not. Just a few names. But these were the ones who were known individually by the Father and of course by Christ who calls us by name on the great roll call of faith. These are the ones, notice verse 4, who have not soiled or defiled their garments. They have not soiled or defiled their garments. We read today from uh, Zechariah chapter 3. 
We read today from Zechariah chapter 3. And um, Zechariah chapter 3 then with regard to um, uh, with regard to the high priest, Joshua the high priest. Notice verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, was standing before the angel. Then he, that is to say the, the Lord Jesus, he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. You get the picture here? We are, we in our own righteousness, they are like filthy rags, according to Isaiah. Our righteousnesses, all the good deeds we can do, all the things, children, whereby you pat yourselves on the back and see, say, see what a good boy, see what a good girl I am. All those things by which you think you can be made right before God, God says, no, these are all filthy rags in my sight. I'm going to give you the robes of righteousness. I'm going to take away your dirty clothing. I'm going to give you clean clothes. But suppose, having been given those clean clothes, you decide that you're going to turn your back on God. Suppose you're not going to be interested in God. Suppose that you're going to live your life in a deliberately rebellious way. That's like not just getting your garments dirty. It's like deliberately, like deliberately, children, deliberately stepping in that mud puddle. One thing if it's an accident. It's another thing if you deliberately step in it. And that's the picture that you have here. There are those, Jesus says, who have not soiled those garments. Those of the remnant, of course, were in the most difficult position. They were in the midst of a hostile pagan world. But more than that, they were in the midst of a church filled with people who were indifferent to living disciplined Christian lives. And yet, they kept true to the faith. They did not succumb to the world's pressure. And furthermore, they put up with being called fanatics, as it were, by the majority of the church. He also says here, not only they have not defiled their garments, but he, and they shall walk with me in white, but he says, for they are worthy. Now this does not refer to sinless perfection, obviously. None of us can claim that or come anywhere close to it. But it's referring to those who have sincerely and deliberately walked in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. That's what Jesus is referring to here. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And they are indeed the overcomers. Notice verse 5, he who overcomes, the overcomers. This term, the one who overcomes or the ones who overcome, this term keeps on appearing in the book of Revelation. In other words, he's saying 
that there are those who come through the fires of adversity and persecution and they triumph, they win, they are victorious, they are the overcomers. And my friends, is that what you want to be today? Do you want to be an overcomer? Or do you want to be drowsy and perhaps dead in your spiritual life? Now notice then the threefold promise here. First of all, clothed in white. The first expression of this is, and they will walk with me in white. They will walk with me in white. You know, to be with Christ is to be in paradise, is to be in glory, if you will. It's to be in paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross as they were dying there, as they were crucified? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Do you remember in John chapter 17 the, um, where uh, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer? 17 verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, that where I am, there, Jesus says, there you may be also. To walk with Christ is to be in his will and to be beside him in his service. By the way, notice the white garments. Isn't that interesting? White garments. White, in general terms, signifies holiness, purity, perfection, festivity, like a, a bride on her wedding day, right? Or, or there was a, uh, yesterday across the street, we think someone was getting married, it certainly looked like it, but it certainly was a party, it had a lot of white out there, festivity, a party. When connected with garments, when connected with garments, white indicated holiness, contrast to sinfulness that often could be signified by nakedness. Holiness. Victory. Glory. And so the first of this threefold promise is these overcomers will be clothed in white. Secondly, Jesus says, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Now, you may recall this phrase first appears in Exodus chapter 32. Remember when Moses came down from the mount and saw the, uh, uh, the uh, golden calf and how angry he was? And of course, God was angry and Moses says, Oh, these people have committed a great sin or made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of thy book which thou hast written. Now, not as if that would actually happen. It does say something about the desire, the fervent desire of Moses. Now, there may, my friends, there may be hypocrites who may appear to be rid of life. In Psalm 69, Psalm 69, 
and verse 28, we read, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, the book of life, and not be written with the righteous. So there are hypocrites, many hypocrites, who may appear outwardly to be written in the book of life. But listen to me carefully. Those who have been chosen from before the foundation of the world will persevere to, their, to the end and their names will never be erased from this book. Now we see this already in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. We're the crown jewels of King Jesus. Isn't that amazing? On the day that I make them my jewels. That's the way Jesus looks at us, as his jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, and in verse 20, Jesus says, you've, got, you've done all these great miracles, you've done all these great things, nevertheless do not rejoice in this, that the spirits, the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are are written in heaven. And later in the book of Revelation, several places, Revelation 13 and verse 8, we read, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is to say, will worship this beast, will worship this devilish, this satanic beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Chapter 17 of Revelation. Chapter 17 of Revelation and verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, to condemnation. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Those who, whose names are not written in the book of life will be deceived, will be led astray by all the lying wonders of the devil. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, into hell. And finally, Revelation 21, verse 27, But there shall by no means enter it, any enter the new Jerusalem, heaven, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, a passage like this has to give us pause, does it not? 
makes all of us, as in the words of Peter, to make sure your, your election and make sure that your, your uh, election and calling are sure. But what we can also bank on, if you will, is that those who belong to Christ, those who, for whom he died, those whom he purchased at the cross, those to whom his Holy Spirit has come to regenerate them, to give them a desire to follow him, have given, has, to whom has been given the grace of repentance and of faith. <coughs> those are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. And they shall never perish. No one can erase them from that book. And furthermore, not only do we have this, the, in terms of this threefold promise, the fact we are clothed in white, not will it be the fact that those who follow him will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. But notice also what he says, verse 5, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will confess his name. That is, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will own us in that great day of judgment. Jesus Christ will own us. He will call us by name. You know, this is such an amazing thing, and I, I wonder, I speak to myself, if we've lost the sense of the wonder of it all. It's almost hypothetical sometimes, isn't it? But it's real. It's real. The Lord Jesus, the one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks, who's walking in our midst right now by his, by his spirit, by his word. The Lord Jesus is the one who sees us and who knows us by name and will recognize us on the day of judgment and will own us before his Father. He's the one who will present us before his Father. And so I have three points of application. First of, all, this, first of all, it is this. Beware the danger of being dead. Beware the danger of being dead. Here, the church at Sardis, as a whole, was described as dead. But the church is made up of individuals, each of whom must be warned. It's made up of officers, of ministers. And so you have to ask the question, of the church in Sardis. Is the ministry dead? Is the ministry dead in any given congregation? Danger zones include spiritual lackadaisicalness and pride. Are the people dead? Dangers include matters of witnessing, and church attendance, personal devotions. Beware the danger of being dead. Secondly, have you soiled your garments? Have you gotten your garments dirty, children? There are many ways that you can get your clothes dirty. That's true in a physical sense. It's true in a spiritual sense. And therefore, if you have soiled your garments, my friends, come to Jesus for cleansing. 
because it is in His blood that our clothes are made whiter than snow. As we have uh, sung, we've sung from the 132nd Psalm. We'll be concluding the second half of that in just a moment in terms of the singing of praise. In Psalm 132 and verse 9, Psalm 132 And verse 9 we read, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. And verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. He, Jesus, clothes his priests with justice and salvation. And of course, we are all priests before God. And as he clothes us with justice and salvation, he thereby brings to us joy. A woman who gets her wedding dress all dirty is not going to be very happy. But if that wedding dress is cleaned up, she's going to be rejoicing. And that's the picture. Have you soiled your garments? Come to Jesus for cleansing. And finally, rejoice in the grace of God which brings salvation. Rejoice in the grace of God which brings salvation. Being provided with white garments. Being written with ink with India ink, if you will, indelible ink, black ink, being written with ink that cannot be erased in the book of life. Indeed, we might even say being written with blood that cannot be erased. And being confessed before the Father and his angels. Rejoice, my friends, rejoice. In the grace of God which brings salvation, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't go to sleep. Watch. Wake up. Lest you die. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? Our Father, we thank Thee for the grace of God in Christ. We thank thee, Lord, that he is the one who is our Savior and Redeemer. We pray, Father, this message would be applied to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst subdue all uh, wicked thoughts, unrighteous thoughts, that thou wouldst be pleased to stir us up, lest we die. And so be pleased to do all these things here in the midst of this tiny congregation. But work in such a way as to bring glory and honor to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.